Welcome to UHN's Seeds of Science podcast, a show by UHN trainees showcasing how today's junior researchers are growing in their scientific fields. Over this podcast series, you will hear from a wide range of UHN masters, PhD and postdoctoral trainees across the different UHN research sites. My name is Emily. I'm your host for this week's episode. Today, I talk to Dr. Sriranga Kashyap, who is currently training in Dr. Camille Uludag's Brain TO Laboratory at the Techna Institute. Sri is a diligent and highly dedicated postdoctoral fellow who developed a passion for neuroimaging during his graduate studies in the Netherlands. As someone who loves learning and developing new skills, he's thoroughly enjoying the transition to clinical-based research at the Slate Family Center for Advanced MRI. During my conversation with Sri, I was struck by his insightful comments about research and his self-assuredness towards changing research fields multiple times during his career so far. I hope you all enjoy hearing about Sri's research journey up until now. I'd like to extend a big welcome and a big thank you to Dr. Sriranga Kashyap for joining us as our very first guest on the podcast. Thanks, Emily. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor to be the first one for this excellent podcast. I think it's a brilliant initiative and uh, I'm sure myself and all our trainees would really learn a lot from each other going forward. So for the listeners, um, Sri and I actually do know each other. Um, We both work in neuroimaging laboratories at Toronto Western Hospital. Um, I'm really excited to have the opportunity to get to know a little bit more about your research and your uh, experiences in research so far. So uh, just to get started, can you tell the listeners what stage of research you are currently in and uh, what lab you're currently training in? I'm currently, um, I think, four years post-PhD, and uh, this is my second postdoctoral uh, fellowship. And I work in neuroimaging. I'm currently working in uh, Professor Kamil Uludag's lab, um, which is called BrainTO. Formerly, I was in Maastricht for my PhD and postdoc. And so you did your PhD with Dr. Uladag as well, is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, he was my PhD advisor in Maastricht, where he formerly was. Um, and then I stuck around for a postdoc. Uh, he moved here, started his lab. And a couple of years later, uh, midway through COVID, <laughs> I moved to Toronto. Fantastic. And so broadly speaking, you've said that you work in neuroimaging. Uh, what type of neuroimaging specifically? Uh, In neuroimaging, it's uh, mostly to do with uh, magnetic resonance imaging. And uh, my role thus far has been in developing acquisition and analysis methods for some specific types of MRI uh, data collection that uh, until now has been in cognitive neurosciences, but slowly progressing into clinical applications. So it's, uh, it's the aspect of acquiring the data in the appropriate manner and doing the right kind of analysis. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. it's so interesting because you and I really come from completely different backgrounds to get to this point of being in clinical neuroscience. Um, with you coming from the acquisition side and me coming with my background in um, neuroanatomy. Uh, so it, it's in a way, it's a really nice first episode because it really highlights the diversity and background and experiences that UHN trainees have um, to get to where we are now. Yeah. So I was just wondering how you got into this field in the first place. Have you always known that you wanted to get into research? Have you always known you wanted to get into neuroimaging research specifically? I do have a very uh, non-linear path to neuroimaging. 
I did my um, bachelor thesis at the National Institute of Mental Health and Neurosciences in Bangalore. My bachelor training has been in uh, biotech engineering, which for those who are unfamiliar is not the same as biomedical engineering. Um, so my uh, biotech engineering uh, bachelor coursework included everything from physics, chemistry, mathematics, uh, biostatistics, but also genetic engineering, molecular biology, biochemistry. We also had a very strong uh, project component uh, for the bachelor thesis. And that's when <laughs> I um, indulged my curiosity in the brain. And one of the things that really interested me at all times was learning and memory. So that was my foray into, um, you know, for trying to find a lab where I could do uh, some, some learning and memory research, learn neuroscience, uh, neuroscience methods. And so did you, when you were doing this project, was that in neuroimaging? It's actually very different from neuroimaging. So the lab I worked, on, uh, worked at was specialized in psychopharmacology and neurophysiology. So the uh, kind of experiments uh, that I did and what I learned were behavioral experiments in, in, in rats. The lab also focused on uh, stress-induced learning and memory deficits. So I did a lot of histology. Uh, sectioning the hippocampus, staining them. And for the listeners who aren't too familiar with neuroanatomy, uh, the hippocampus being a key region involved in learning and memory. Exactly, yeah. And um, also uh, very important in, in stress-related uh, disorders, uh, given its role in the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis. Uh, so there's a lot going on in the limbic system, which the lab was studying, but for my project, I only dealt with the hippocampus and its role in learning and memory. And so this sort of leads us into more what you've been focusing on more recently. Um, during your grad studies, this was in um, in Maastricht, is that correct? That is correct, yeah. <laughs> Working with rodents and, you know, uh, sectioning brains didn't resonate with me. So I was looking for something non-invasive to study the brain. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things you get if you Google non-invasive brain is MRI. Uh -huh. And <laughs> that led me to look for courses which teach you MRI and neuroimaging and I did want to study in Europe. I, I applied to the Netherlands because they're bilingual. Uh, I applied to Maastricht. They had a brilliant neuroimaging center with uh, three different MRI machines, a three Tesla, seven Tesla, and a human 9.4 Tesla. Wow. Uh, so for the listeners who aren't too familiar with MRI, um, three, seven, 9.4 Tesla, uh, what does this mean in terms of the actual images that you're acquiring of the brain? The Tesla is the unit of measurement of the magnetic field strength. Um, so most clinical scanners are 1.5 Tesla and more recently 3 Tesla, um, but the 7 and 9.4 Tesla scanners, they are analogous to having different magnification factors in, in, uh, in microscopy or different megapixels in your camera. The goal is to allow you to see the brain in unprecedented detail. So um, as you go to these stronger magnetic fields, you have a lot more signal and what people do is they trade the signal off for spatial resolution. So the higher the field strength, uh, one could simplify it to say that it allows you to see more detail. With that analogy, I think uh, having access to these machines would allow you to probe structures of the brain which are small, maybe invisible at smaller field strengths. It would give you an opportunity to play a bit more with the technologies to, to image these regions. Fantastic. And so during your grad studies, um, during your PhD, were you mainly using the three Tesla or seven Tesla? What was your primary focus on during your PhD? Um, my master thesis project also when I encountered uh, working together with Kamil's group because his group was specialized in 
developing new acquisition methods for ultra high field and ultra high field is something that's more than three tesla some of the groups in maastricht were getting into imaging the hippocampus and my master project and my interest in the hippocampus kind of converged that was my first foray into into seven tesla work and that kind of continued into my phd where uh, almost entirely was done at seven tesla and a few uh, not so successful projects at 9.4 tesla And so with neuroimaging, uh, what sort of images can we acquire? Um, what sort of information about the brain can we get from these MRI scans? For uh, you know, like clinical applications, seeing some lesions better than other lesions, uh, like these are examples of structural scans. And what that means is you're seeing the brain's structure. You're not seeing the brain at work. You're just taking static images of the brain, how the gray matter, white matter, CSF looks like. Functional magnetic resonance imaging this is imaging the brain at work when you give it a stimulus or you have the participant do something in the scanner or not you map the brain over a period of time and see what the brain is doing there are of course other modalities and some things that i worked on during my phd was uh, a technique that's quite close to my heart which is uh, called asl or arterial spin labeling this method allows you to map cerebral blood flow when you're measuring neuronal activity you're looking at different aspects of uh, what the um, so when the neurons see a stimulus and they start getting um, you know or processing this information they need oxygen and they need nutrients that need to be delivered and this happens with the blood flow and at 7 tesla in these higher field strength you can really map how these uh, this blood flow is responsible for brain activity So getting more into your research focus now, um, I believe you moved to Toronto around the same time that I did, which was in the summer of 2021. Is that correct? Indeed, yeah. <laughs> well, welcome to Toronto. Um, so I believe you've moved from this more university setting to more of a hospital setting. I wonder how you found the transition to this more clinical focus, and how has your project developed since you've been here? Uh, yeah, it's it's actually been quite interesting. The contrast that I do see is that in the hospital setting, you see how your research is immediately relevant. That uh, there is an impact of any new development that you do or your research on the people, and this is something that, in my past experience in in cognitive neuroscience, was a bit unclear to me. I mean, the valorizability of my work. I can image the visual cortex at very high resolutions, but how would it be impactful for someone with congenital blindness or something like mm-hmm. this right but in a hospital environment i think there is uh, a lot of uh, complementary resource and researchers who are specialized in uh, very relevant things in my opinion and um, it, it's it's a nice amalgamation of the methodological expertise that i have gained over these many years with uh, the clinical research expertise that's already there and um i think these two skill sets complement each other and it's one of the most exciting things of being here that my future work could in some way improve patient uh, comfort and healthcare So as part of your postdoc here in Toronto, uh you're involved in implementing a complementary software platform in addition to what is already available at Toronto Western uh that will facilitate the productivity and management of neuroimaging data. Could you tell us a little about that? 
my postdoc here is is actually split into two aspects so one is the uh, the the research questions and the primary focus at least is to implement uh, this uh, data management platform called xnet we're implementing it on a uhn server with uhn data management support as well this would allow us to use a browser based app to manage our data run some pre-processing that is unsupervised on the cloud uh, of course <laughs> it's it's a lot more uh, nuanced uh, than than what i'm making it out to be this will be an option for neuroimaging researchers here at Toronto Western through the Slate Family Center for Advanced MRI. Fantastic. And so in addition to XNAT, uh, you also mentioned that you have your own research project here. Um, could you let us know a bit about what that entails? One of my uh, postdoc projects is to develop arterial spin labeling, which is a technique I spoke about earlier and has been shown to have clinical applicability at 3Tesla and the sequences that you get straight off the scanner they are great but my interest is in high resolution so uh, i want to push the 3 tesla imaging to what it can actually fulfill with high resolution in mind and so it seems to me that you're really enjoying research which is amazing um, do you see yourself staying in research longer term? Do you see yourself getting a position at a university or at a hospital? Um, yeah, what, what can you see for yourself in, let's say, five years' time? So far, it has been a lot of change in terms of switching disciplines. I am learning a lot more um, in my second postdoc that is completely different to what I was uh, aware of earlier. So five years from now, I'm a bit hesitant to pinpoint where I will be. But so far, my interests have carried me. But I do enjoy research. I do enjoy medical research. I think clinical applications, uh, it's incredibly fulfilling. And having gone to work with some of the groups here, I do see a lot of potential for me to also grow as a researcher. And yeah, in five years' time, will I be able to get a position at a university? One can dream, I suppose. Um, I think for the moment, I really want to hone my skills to suit the kind of research that is being done here at Western, learn new skills. And uh, I think that's the whole important part of the trainee process, right? You are uh, acquiring new things. You're not stagnant at any point in time. Absolutely. And so you've mentioned a couple of times now that you have changed fields a few times in your career so far. I'm just wondering whether you've ever had any doubts about changing fields. It must take quite a bit of courage to follow your interests in this way. It's a very important point. I think for me, the fear was not as much of changing the discipline. I mean, it also wasn't the fear of maybe I would fail. The fear was mostly about what would I do next? You know, like every time you change disciplines, things get more uncertain. Say if I stayed in bioengineering, then I would know that, okay, I have a career in the pharma sector or... Um, as a genetic engineer for another company, something like this. There was this repeated buildup of uncertainty until I found something that I really connected with, which was neuroimaging using MRI. So it, it's partly due to my own nature being a bit bullish when I go into things that I don't care if I don't know. Um, I just have belief in my ability to learn. I've been fortunate to have uh, a lot of people uh, as I was jumping disciplines who were uh, kind, understanding, and enabled my curiosity uh, in a way that I was never discouraged from asking questions. And that's the only way I ever felt I would learn, is to ask questions, however naive it may be. And I think um, 
a lot of people misunderstand the value of education in schooling or during your bachelor's. The bachelor programs typically have like 30 courses that you take, all of which are somewhat overlapping but equally different. But what I think people need to understand is any course that you've taken in your life has just taught you to train your brain to learn. So what you become at a master's level is a person who's efficient at learning, which means you can learn anything. Do you change a discipline? There is no need to fear. You're now good at learning something. So maybe it'll take you two months, but you will still learn. And uh, I think that's the attitude with which I approached every change that has happened. Yeah. So something that I've really learned along the way uh, during my PhD and also during my postdoc so far is that uh, these projects can take a long time and so it's really important to stop and appreciate all the achievements that we have along the way. Uh, and so I was just wondering if you could share with us a recent achievement that you've had uh, that you feel really proud of. Not directly relevant to stuff that I'm doing here but we had our high resolution ASL paper that was published in PLOS One. And this was the first sub-millimeter blood flow mapping study ever done. It was an effort of close to two and a half years, very collaborative because it involved a lot of sequence programming before it even came to my hand. And then, uh, you know, you optimize and tweak the acquisition and then all the analysis that you need to do afterwards. So it was a huge process. We were very proud that we were able to publish it and it was very well received by the community. That's fantastic. Being a two and a half year long project, uh, that's got to feel really good. Indeed, yeah. So given a project can take two and a half years or longer to complete, um, there are always going to be setbacks uh, along the way. And I think you alluded to earlier that there was a study at 9.4 Tesla during your PhD studies that didn't go quite so well. What do you learn from these sorts of experiences and what do you take away from these setbacks? I do think that as PhD students, we often uh, underappreciate that not every project will be a huge success right off the bat. Um, you do see your colleagues who are also in the same boat as you, but maybe having far successful projects than you have. So one thing that I did learn the hard way is failure is a reality, but that doesn't mean that it's failure of you as a person or of you as a researcher. Uh, some projects just don't pan out the way you plan it to. I think these lessons you learn and you grow with it over time. And that's part of being the trainee process and there's no reason to be disheartened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's excellent advice. And then something else that is often part of the trainee process uh, is that, you know, oftentimes grad students and postdocs will change labs and even move across the world to continue their training and uh, develop their research skills further in different labs. I mean, you've moved from India to Europe and now to Canada. Uh, what sort of challenges have you experienced uh, with moving overseas multiple times throughout your research career so far, especially uh, most recently when you've moved to Toronto midway through a pandemic? <laughs> Yeah, from India to, to, to Maastricht in the Netherlands, I would say it was relatively uneventful. Of course, there's a bit of a culture shock in the sense that the lab culture, it, it's, it's, it's very different when you go between different institutes, different research groups, but you adapt. And I think this is the biggest process of being a researcher, that you are not just training yourself to do good research, but you're also training to adapt to changes that either happen because you plan them or because you don't. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very useful, I think, life skill to gain generally. 
The mid-pandemic move was quite stressful, I would say. Firstly, because the vaccination situation in the world was very uncertain. The quarantine process was like awful. Uh, but Toronto itself is a beautiful city. The people are amazing. The people I work with are awesome as well. So I think in terms of settling down, uh, it hasn't been that difficult. And now, do you have any uh, advice for junior trainees or for students who are considering getting into research and maybe even into neuroimaging research specifically? As long as you have some skills that are transferable across disciplines, the time of uh, solo natural science leaders uh, is kind of slowly diminishing because even if you do something in natural sciences, you need to be a software programmer. You need to have mathematical skills. Like mm-hmm. These are some things that you just cannot be without. So if you're interested in your imaging, don't worry that you don't have a physics background. There are things that you can learn and do even without having the more specialized skill set. The most important thing that I would say is you need to be willing to learn and be naive and accept the fact that you're very naive in this. And uh, going into it with a certain naivety and an open mind always helps uh, absorb more information from the people around you. I do really think that it's very important to collaborate, especially at the early stage of your career with people, uh, not necessarily those you know, maybe it's a start, but also with people you don't know because there is so much you can learn from this other person, the perspective that they bring, especially if they have a different background, it's it's invaluable. Absolutely. And um, the whole collaborative process, which is so critical to research, especially now, is something that you cannot learn in theory. It's It's only... All the hurdles that you get, the things that you need to work out, you only know that by experience. The earlier you get the experience, the better. But collaborations can be distracting. So you need to make sure that you get your own projects in line first and then engage in collaborations. Yeah, I think that's some good advice. So switching gears a little bit, uh, on the weekend, I had the pleasure of going to a maple syrup festival, um, which is a very Canadian experience. I got to learn how they tap the trees to get the sap and then how they turn the sap into syrup. Um, And so I was just wondering, since you've been here, what is the most Canadian experience you've had? (laughs) Oh, wow. Um, I'm not sure. I did enjoy the winter a lot. Oh, you uh, did? Yes. Uh, is that a very Canadian thing to do? Like I enjoy? Think so. Yeah. <laughs> did uh, you Did you enjoy the snowstorms? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for a South Indian, <laughs> right? Um, I think uh, it's very strange, but I absolutely loved it. Speaking of snow, on your old lab profile, I saw this amazing picture of you standing in front of these snowy mountains. Can you tell me about this experience? Um, and do you enjoy traveling and trekking uh, in general? That's a that's a picture in front of the Matterhorn uh, in wow. in Zermatt, Switzerland. So um, that that was still when when I was a student uh, in in Maastricht, um, and I really took advantage of all the student discounts, especially when you're traveling through Switzerland. It's very expensive, so I did do quite a bit of travel in between holidays. Uh, you know, Easter. I think that was taken during Easter, so it was like a three day trip. I do enjoy traveling quite a bit. I did try to see as much around me and and different countries, explore their architecture and history a little bit uh, as I could. Um, I do enjoy taking walks in the wild. I do come from a part of India which has quite lush forests 
and greenery around me so there's a lot of opportunities for you know trekking uh, encountering animals and things like this so i do enjoy it indeed Okay, so Sri, uh, now we're at the point where I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions. You haven't seen these before, so the first thing you think of, I want your answer, okay? So don't spend too long on each question. Never done this, so. Yeah. Don't think about it too philosophically, although I am going to profile you at the end. And I'll, yeah, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay, pancakes or waffles? Waffles. Texting or talking on the phone? Uh, talking on the phone. Would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or talk to animals? Talk to animals. Invisibility or super strength? Super strength. Polka dots or stripes? Uh, polka dots. Would you rather come face to face with a miniature hippopotamus or a giant cockroach? Both are in a bad mood. Miniature hippopotamus. And finally, tropical island holiday or backcountry camping adventure? Tropical island holiday. <laughs> okay, we'll um, we'll go take an fMRI scan and correlate the measures with the brain activity or something. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> having, having a tropical island adventure with a miniature hippopotamus wearing polka dots, I mean, I think that's the dream. <laughs> Alrighty, well, Sri, thank you so much for coming in today uh, to speak with me and for sharing your insightful perspectives on research. Um, I'm sure many of the listeners will really take a lot from it. And so I really do appreciate your time. Thank you, Emily, for your very kind words. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed getting to know a little about Sri and his research journey thus far. If you'd like to reach out to Sri, his Twitter handle and UHN email are posted in the episode description, available at the ORT website. And there you'll also find the great photo of Sri on the trail to the Matterhorn, If you would like to be featured on the Seeds of Science podcast, please reach out to us. We hope you enjoy getting to know UHN trainees through this podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode in two weeks' time. Seeds of Science is proudly supported by the UHN Office of Research Trainees, with special thanks to Drs. Amanda Berry and Linda Penn. Hosting, recording and editing by Dr. Emily Mills and Rima El-Sayed. Outreach management by Dr. Olivia McHale and assistance from Ariana Besick.